0: Hello and welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. I'm thrilled today to be presenting a very special episode I've spent about a month working on, going deep down into a wormhole that was a wormhole founded by people going deep down into a wormhole that's existed since the mid to late 60s and talking about David Fincher's film Zodiac, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and so many others. It's an extraordinary film. I've done a lot of research. I'm going to try to move quickly and cover as much as I possibly can, although that will probably be impossible. I'm going to start you out with a quote by David Fincher. Some people go to the movies to be reminded that everything's all right. I don't make those kinds of movies. That pretty much says it all. So let's begin with a little insight into this extraordinary film. And the music you're gonna hear me briefly playing as interstitials all comes from the fantastic soundtrack. There's also some ancillary music composed by David Shire, who we've mentioned a bunch of times on the pod. So let's get started. Zodiac was released in 2007. And since I began posting on the Full Cast and Crew podcast page that I was going to be doing this movie, I've heard from many of you about your deep, deep appreciation for this film. And I've been thinking, as I've prepared over these past three or four weeks for the movie, what is it that I love about this movie? Well, I love its artistry, its dedication to getting things right, its commitment to treating real people fairly in their historical context, I appreciate it for the performance of Robert Downey Jr., for the performance of Jake Gyllenhaal, for the performance of Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, Chloe Savigny, Donald Logue, James LaGrosse, Elias Cotillas, John Carroll Lynch, on and on and on. We'll talk more about the cast specifically later in the episode. I appreciate the thoroughly researched script, which we will also talk more about the process of. I appreciate the complexity behind what appears to be the simplicity of the storytelling. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the extraordinary attention to detail throughout the development, writing, and production of this film. I appreciate the movie for its audacity, not because the things attempted on screen had never been done before, or because they are so ostentatious or showy or demonstrative of obvious filmmaking skill, but because, as Fincher himself had said, it's a film without any car chases where all the characters basically just talk to each other. And in the end, the suspect isn't caught, and that's already known to the audience. So the fact that this film gets made, even in its time, for 75 or $80 million, because we're unfortunately now living in a moment where despite the pedigree of everyone involved in this movie, there's no way this film gets made in today's film environment. It was the product of so much luck and timing and hard work by the production team, the main producer, the screenwriter who we'll talk about, and the coming together of all these careers and all this momentum and studios' appetite for risk and lack of appetite for risk. There are two studios that ultimately paired together to assume the risk of making this movie Paramount and Warner Brothers. So it was an audacious undertaking to begin with. I appreciate this movie for its style and its substance. It's obviously an extraordinary looking and sounding film, but that's nothing new for Fincher. I equate this to, this is his Jackie Brown. The same way that that film, which is my favorite of Tarantino's, before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the same way that Jackie Brown was largely devoid of the so-called Tarantino tricks, the theatricality of Tarantino, a filmmaker known for calling attention to his directorial audacity and brilliance, so too is this Fincher film, devoid of the kinds of narrative or technical complexities in in its own way, of films like Fight Club, Seven, or Benjamin Button, And in stripping down the filmmaking, I think it's all the more powerful and subtle, and the aforementioned attention to detail is all the more astonishing. It's a film for attentive watchers and listeners, for persons who appreciate subtle acting and characterization in marriage with great writing and film structure and editing I appreciate also that it's in its own way about the coruscating, damaging effects of fame. You can look up and down the cast and the real-life people. You could say Dave Tosky, the uh, inspector for the San Francisco Police Department, portrayed so memorably by Mark Ruffalo. He's damaged in his own way by his pursuit of fame. He becomes a very well-known inspector, police detective of his time. He has an appetite for the spotlight. He gets written about a lot. He likes it. Part of the detail in the movie is that he fakes fan letters to the writer Armistead Maupin, who was writing a column for the San Francisco Chronicle at the time. He had written about Dave Tosky in his column. And Dave Tosky sent fan letters under a different name to Malpin, asking him to bring back the character of Toski in the column. And Malpin figures out that it's Toski himself that's written these letters. And when you watch all of the making of featurettes, and you can see a little bit of Dave Toski in them, I'm sure he's had a very illustrious career. But he comes across as a guy who really appreciates the spotlight. He comes across as a guy both in Graysmith's books, which perhaps have some narrative problems of their own, which we'll talk about. But in general, Tosky comes across as a guy later in his career, post-retirement, is kind of professionally himself. He's a guy that goes to a lot of retired detective events and functions because he's a star there. He likes that attention. And that becomes part of the story when he's accused of sending one of the Zodiac letters to revive interest in the case and in himself, which uh, is an accusation he was later cleared of. Toski's the man who famously inspired Steve McQueen to wear the the self-made holster in the way he does in the film Bullet. And he's been in the media, was in the media for 40 or 50 years because of his proximity to this case. And you can contrast this with people like Bill Armstrong, who's Toski's partner. The way he's portrayed in the movie, the fact that he's portrayed by Anthony Edwards in the film, as we'll talk about when we talk about the cast... He's the counterpoint to Toski. He doesn't, he's tired of the circus. He wasn't in it for column inches and dinners and free drinks. He walked away from the police department ultimately and he stayed away. And you end up respecting that more in its own way. Paul Avery, who's the character portrayed by Robert Downey Jr., finds himself part of a story that he's reporting. And that fame, notoriety, and combination with the own His own struggles and demons ultimately takes him out of the game. It destroys him. For whoever the Zodiac was, the pursuit of fame and notoriety was part of the underpinnings for the killings. Column inches, ink, he wanted that. It was a motivating part of his reasons for taking the lives of his victims. Robert Graysmith, who is portrayed kind of as the hero of the film, And is lovably bumbling and uh, not willfully antisocial, but just sort of kind of comically in his own world as a cartoonist. His career has really been about continuing to write about the case, the movie, numerous books. I mean, it's become a business for him, which is ironic because there's a great scene that will play in the movie where Avery asks him pointedly, what's his part? In this business,
1: how can people be so heartless? How can people be so cruel? Yeah. To be high.
0: Three Dog Night, an incredible song that's used to open the film and the incredible sequence that opens the film. I want to talk a little about the context of Fincher's career at this point because one of the unexpectedly interesting things for me was realizing just how uncompromising he was, how willing he was to walk away from prospective films if the conditions that he believed were required for success were not met by the studio and think about I mean it's often kind of a it's bandied about in Hollywood that uh, saying no is much much harder than saying yes and Fincher said no plenty of times because the budget wasn't right because he couldn't get a certain actor because the information couldn't be confirmed part of this I think is the origins of his career, which is a bit interesting. A lot of directors that you could read about today don't necessarily start up in the business at the lowest rung and work their way up to becoming a director, but that's very much his case. He grew up in the San Francisco area. He returned to the San Francisco area to begin his career. He loaded cameras for an animation company in Mill Valley. He worked at Industrial Light and Magic, which had set up shop in the area, George Lucas's company. He worked as a focus puller. He shot blue screen. He was a first assistant cameraman. He worked on Return of the Jedi. He worked on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. He did matte painting. He did matte photography. And in 1984, he directed his first commercial, which is still notorious. You may have seen it it's worth Googling. It's for the American Cancer Foundation, and it was a shot of a fetus smoking a cigarette in the womb, which is such a jarring, amazing, unforgettable image that it rapidly drew the attention of Hollywood. At the time, we're right in the midst of the rise of MTV. He founded a production company called Propaganda Films, which housed some of the most well-known directors of its time doing music videos. And he and they directed some of the most famous and the biggest budgeted music videos of the 90s for people like Madonna and Michael Jackson, on and on. He made commercials at the very highest levels, millions of millions of dollars spent making commercials. And in a way, his commercial income, which continued, uh, and maybe perhaps to this day continues, he, he made and makes so much money directing commercials that that career being so lucrative i think contributed for his ability to walk away if circumstances were not right to direct a film but he directed his first film in 1990 he was hired to replace the director of alien 3 which was a famously fraught terrible experience for fincher and forever turned him off to the studio i think it was fox and after that his next film you may have heard of we did it on the pod It was a little film called Seven, which forever took the mantle of most audacious, most artistic serial killer film, probably from Silence of the Lambs. And that film is so baroque. The violence is so in your face and over the top. The atmosphere is so unrelenting. Um that when this film came into his orbit through the producer Brad Fisher and the screenwriter Jamie Vanderbilt, it's probable that you know intuitively he realized he had to go in a completely different direction than they had gone with Seven. But what I think attracted Fincher to the film, if you read about the making of, if you watch the featurettes, uh, there was an enormous amount of work done by Brad Fisher and Jamie Vanderbilt and a host of other people involved in the production to get all of these details specifically right and in place. I'm talking about everything from getting someone like Dave Tosky to allow them to use his name, uh, getting the primary suspect featured in the film, Arthur Lee Allen's relatives, to agree to use their uh, names and likenesses in the film. A hundred million details that Fincher insisted on getting right before the film was even a go. And all during this enormous amount of work done by predominantly these two people, Brad Fisher and Jamie Vanderbilt, and their supporting staffers. Um, When you read about it in Gray Smith's book, he has a book called Shooting Zodiac, which I just finished, which is one of the weirder making of Hollywood books I've read. I've read pretty much all of them. And it's interesting because it stops just as the movie is greenlit and you, it's not actually the story of the making of the movie. There's nothing about the shooting uh, on set, life, or any of that stuff. Although that's been covered elsewhere. But fascinatingly, it's about the development process uh, which Graysmith Smith was very involved with with Brad Fisher and Jamie Vanderbilt. And he had at that point written, I think, one or two major books about the Zodiac Killings and Zodiac the film is based on his book. But here's what's amazing uh, you would assume that many directors faced with a property that has a book would tell their screenwriter, okay, you're going to adapt the book. And, you know, there's going to be whatever back and forth there's going to be between maybe actors who want to be in the film who need their own character rewritten or studio notes or all that kind of stuff. But basically, you have the source material. So let's extract a screenplay from the source material. That's a fairly established process. But what Fincher did was go and have Brad Fisher and Jamie Vanderbilt re-interview everyone still living about the case. Nothing was to go into the screenplay that did not come directly from someone they personally spoke to or from police reports or case evidence they physically possessed. Nothing. And in effect, the filmmaking unit in this pre-production screenwriting phase became the centralized task force that never existed at the time of the killings because that's not how police forces interacted with each other at the time. And one of the interesting through lines of the film is the difficulty that the San Francisco police and the Vallejo police have sharing information, working together, and you're aware that at this time we were not sophisticated enough in our approach to crime solving and crime scene processing to act quickly, swiftly, and with the type of Presence that would have probably created an abundance of additional evidence that could have been used to solve the case. Here's a quote from Fincher. Uh, He said to these guys Verify everything in the script, tell the real story of the real people whose lives this movie is about. Visit the real sites where their life changing and life ending events took place. This is not a vacation, this is work the hardest work there is, and it takes heart. It's anathema to rely on any secondary or tertiary source. Police reports are the rule. That and the people who were there. Let's find everyone we can who was materially involved in the investigation and let's sit down across from them, look them in the eye, ask them direct and sometimes difficult questions, and then hear what they have to say.
1: This has always been known as a city of mystery, and it seems now to have a new and real one on its hands. Five murders, and somebody who says he committed all and will commit yet more. The search Barbara's goes on 18...
2: in San Francisco for the man known as the Zodiac Killer. The elements
1: involved the death- Zodiac,
2: a symbol that now stands for terror in San Francisco. Today there was a possibly significant development in the terrifying case of a man who calls himself Zodiac The psychotic killer has already murdered five. One at a lover's lane near a lake just north of San Francisco. Three others in nearby Vallejo. The latest, a taxi driver in San Francisco.
0: So that's a little bit about local news reports at the time. This attention to detail is obvious in the many documentaries that exist about the making of the film. And... It's what I think makes the film truly special. It, as Fincher says, making movies is ultimately a subjective thing. So he is making choices, but he's making choices based around information that he's able to get. And in doing so, his obsessive, meticulous attention to detail is evident in uh, many of the sound bites that you will hear from people involved this is victor zolfo who worked in the uh, set decoration crew talking about how specific fincher was yeah over the back
3: with regard to locations when you scout with david the locations are very important to him i mean more so than other directors like at uh, Blue Rock Springs, for example, we were all huddled there one evening and it was dusk and we were trying to be there at the time of day that, you know, before it got too dark to see, but would give us the night and he started talking about the murder and how he was going to stage it and how it actually happened and how the cars would park, how he came up behind them and blocked them in, how Darlene drove into such a position that she couldn't get out and it was... It, it's an intense experience because David is so into it. I mean, that's
0: just one example. There's a lot of examples in the making of stuff about him talking through the murders and the, the specifics of what was going to happen. Um, he became obsessed. Everyone became obsessed. And the obsession, I think, is what lends the film such a lasting Power. Now, when the film begins, it actually has a pretty fascinating credit uh, card that comes up. You know how, in most movies based on actual events, you will have seen a card that says, "The following is based on true events. The following actually occurred." Based on true events. Nowadays, it's kind of fashionable. I wish I could. I should have looked up a couple of other examples, but I've, I've noticed in reading film reviews recently there's a moment for sort of arch-winking versions of that. Like, most of the following probably happened. I think um, I think there's a few films that use that sort of tongue-in-cheek to say that, you know, basically, we're taking creative license and we're veering away from what actually happened in order to present you a dramatic or comedic filmic experience that doesn't really have as much to do with the actual events as you might be led to believe. So that's pointedly not what's on screen at the beginning of Zodiac. What's on screen is what follows is based on actual case files, which I think is a statement of intent right off the bat when you know the film. And I can tell you because I've gone down the rabbit hole I've put notes in the podcast notes uh, to some of the source materials I consulted. I think I read three or four books. I watched the movie four or five times. I've watched four or five long documentaries about the case, about the making of the film. And I can tell you that the commitment to veracity is there. That's not to say that the case is solved by the movie. It's not to say that Arthur Lee Allen, who is the fixation of everyone portrayed on screen, is someone you might walk away thinking, okay, I believe it probably was that guy. We'll talk about that at the end. When the film starts, there's this incredible scene that shows us the second of what are purported to be the Zodiac killings. There was a, a, a lover's lane killing that took place at a place called Lake Herman, which the Zodiac took credit for after the murder that we're about to witness at the start of the movie, which is between these two 19, 22-year-old lovers, Darlene and Mike Mageau, at Blue Rock Springs. I think I read somewhere Fincher said, well, there wasn't really a lot of drama in the first attack. So they started with Blue Rock Springs. And it's also more dramatically efficient to start there because that's the subject of the first letter that the Zodiac sends to the San Francisco Chronicle. This opening scene is so amazing, the way information is parceled out. There's so much misdirection. You see Darlene driving the car. It's like A lot of these things, the expectations are upended a bit. Like, we are in, I don't know, 1966. She's driving the car. She's kind of in charge. Mike looks like a 14-year-old kid. He is so out of his league with her. But she's also wearing braces. And there's so much going on in the scene between them before anything even happens. And the way that Fincher portrays what he knows to be factually correct based on Mike Mageau's own recounted version of the story, which he did not rely upon from the police reports at the time, because Mike Mageau lived a unfortunate life of a homeless person for many, many years uh, after the Zodiac attack that he suffered, but he survived and Darlene was killed. And in this opening scene, there's so much great information where have you been? Been waiting since 7.
1: Get in. I uh, have to find fireworks. Let me drive. Get in.
3: I haven't eaten in 24 hours. Are you coming or not?
0: See, like right there, you just have such an interesting dynamic. He puts a cigarette in to appear older. They go to this drive-in and you don't almost notice it at first. But she notices that someone's following them.
4: It's too crowded.
0: And she decides to leave.
4: Uh, let's
0: go the actor to that portrays her is fant- fantastic and does all this really, really well. Okay. And again, you notice this is all, there's no music. It's pretty sparse, except for... What do we do? The music playing on the car stereo.
1: Sitting. Listening
3: to music. Talking.
0: You seem weird. And again, he's out of his depth.
3: Yeah, everything's fine. It's July. How many shirts are you wearing? I'm cold. You're cold.
0: So he was wearing three pairs of pants, three shirts, two sweaters, a jacket. He says in an interview that's part of one of the documentaries that he did that because he was so young and skinny looking that he bulked up. It's, of course, created uh, decades of conjecture that he thought they were going to be attacked by someone who had been following Darlene. And that's why he wore all the clothes, you know. And this use of Donovan's hurdy-gurdy man is extraordinary. Uh, and the way, when you watch this scene, the information is parceled out to you is so good.
4: I saw that car, Mr. Vance. The woman's
3: unbelievable. Stay in the car.
0: And as he drives off, you know, she knows more about this than Mike Majot does. And that's part of what's going on here. It's an incredible scene that starts us out with all of the approach that we're going to be fed in place. And this little bit of information that that he asks her, was that your husband? Wait, she has a husband? They look like teenagers, right? She has braces. He's so young looking. She has a husband? What? What's going on? We don't know. All of this is meticulously appropriate to exactly what happened, according to the police reports and according to Mike Mageau, who survived this shooting. Um, and it is extraordinary. And from that first scene... We are off and then we are in a newspaper movie. which is, of course, one of my favorite genres of film. A big inspiration for the newspaper sequences is, of course, All the President's Men. Brilliant, brilliant film. The newsroom, you'll notice many similar tracking shots and use of uh, the full frame in focus. This is also one of the first Hollywood films completely shot on digital cameras, except for some of the murder sequences which were shot on film so that they could be slowed down. But I want to talk about that later because I think that plays into some of, the, some of the lack of Oscar appreciation for this film at the time. It reminded me that that was a thing, you know, that there was a moment before digital cinema was as widespread where it wasn't considered real, and maybe it didn't get nominations for reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the film. Anyway, once we're in the newspaper portion of the film, it's the letters that come full frame, and I think it's the letters that spoke to Fincher. He says in some of his uh, commentary on the making of the film that it's the power of the documents that the Zodiac sent, those are the... Talismanic, powerful, frightening mementos which remain. Like regardless of all the crap that's heaped upon this, the most famous of unsolved serial killer cases outside of Jack the Ripper. That is not an overstatement if you think about it. That's how extraordinary it is, but also how mundane it is because the reason that it's extraordinary is that it got media attention. And unlike something like the Manson killings, Uh, it wasn't solved. And in the absence of a solve, you have a cottage industry that is still going strong. There are still podcasts. I just read a review of a book that purports to put forth all these connections to another suspect. But the documents themselves, which Fincher uses brilliantly in the film, Seeing the actual door of the Carmen Ghia car that the Zodiac rode on after the, uh, his next killing. Seeing the letters, seeing the codes and the ciphers. It's still shocking and powerful. And it contributes to a little bit of this movie within a movie stuff, which I also like. It reminds me of De Palma's blowout, which we did on the pod. There are shots of... Newspaper people photographing and processing and creating the plates required to run images of the letters and the ciphers in the newspaper. And again, you have a bit of this making of B storyline that runs through. Uh, Is it a movie about making movies? Not per se, but it is very much a movie about the making of stories, And so as it's a movie about the making of a story, it's necessarily the movie about how a newsroom functions and how it decides what to do, what not to do, what parts of stories to elevate. It's also about how the need that the media created at the time to continue feeding the story caused them to perhaps lump things into possible Zodiac killings that had nothing to do with the Zodiac because it sold newspapers. So when there were gaps between communications from the purported killer to the news media, well, there was a lot of attempt on the behalf of of a variety of newspapers and reporters to, uh, to say, maybe this was a Zodiac killing. Maybe this was a Zodiac killing. And so It's about storytelling and it's about how the story can assume a proportion that gets in the way of the truth. And I think that's where Fincher's brilliance was in knowing that somehow they had to start all over, do the whole investigation again before they shot a, well, I guess not a frame of digital cinema, but before they started rolling data onto their cards. And it's also a San Francisco movie. It's a crime movie set in San Francisco and the film history of San Francisco. There's a famous time-lapse of the Transamerica building. We are following the changeover in the city from the early 60s to the 70s and beyond. It references films like Bullet, Dirty Harry. It also references films less known, like the great Don Siegel's film The Lineup which is one of the first films to really utilize real San Francisco. And San Francisco had had a robust film industry for a long, long time. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 78, which we've done on the podcast, great episode. But really at the time of the filming of Zodiac, all of that had pretty much fallen away. There wasn't a lot of production going on in the Bay Area, but Fincher being from the area, this was a story that affected him as a child and, uh, He knew that it had to be connected to the actual locations. And it's really the producers of Zodiac who did a lot of the heavy lifting, worked with the mayor's office in San Francisco to reintroduce the kinds of tax incentives and ease of business requirements that were necessary to kind of re-lure film productions back. And at the same time that they were trying to get this film up and going, there was a long period where maybe Fincher was going to direct Benjamin Button before this. And if he had, the producers would have had no option but to essentially go and get a different director. Because that's the way the business was working. Many, many months of uncertainty about whether the film would go, which film would go first, whether they would get the budget they needed, whether they would get the information that they needed, all in pursuit of the story. And again, that's part of, I think, what the underlying stuff why the understanding underlying stuff works so, so well. Now, we were talking about the newspaper. Here's another little bit of specificity in the newsroom, which was completely fabricated as a set. And it was set dressed to this level I
4: remember going down to the Chronicle set and walking through almost an entire floor of a building built like the 1969 San Francisco Chronicle.
0: That's screenwriter, the screenwriter Jamie Vanderbilt. a stack
4: of the day's newspapers at the San Francisco Chronicle, and there is in the, in the movie, too. And I went over and picked up one of the newspapers, and, and it's reprinted every single page of the paper. So you could walk onto the set, pick up, like, the third newspaper from a stack of 20 at the bottom, open up to page 37, and read the article that was in the Chronicle that day.
3: We went to UCLA Library and the downtown library and, and looked. This on the is Hope Parish, first, who's the property and then we master. contacted a company in Michigan who has all the microfilm. That's where you have to go to get the full size. And then I had them pull these images and put together files. And then my people did the final cleaning up of everything and just lined them up perfectly. And then email them to a company in Glendale that was printing my newspapers. And then from there, then I would get the newspapers from them, a finished product. It's exact. You've got. August 1st, 1969's newspaper right in front of you. We find something and we just get so thrilled, you know, because it's like, oh, wow, this is fantastic, you
0: know. Okay. Did you follow how insane that process was? They're getting the original microfiche, if you remember going to the library in the 70s and the 80s. The original newspapers exist only on microfiche. So they're going to the company that has the microfiche and they're getting all of the images for the hundreds of e- editions of the newspaper they require. And then they have to lay relay out the newspaper. And then they have to get that printed. (laughs) So that when you walk on the set, as Jamie Vanderbilt, the screenwriter, says, you could go three or four down a stack of newspapers. And you're looking at the actual newspaper. Now, no one does this in the movie. It's not part of the things that characters are engaged in doing. But that's the degree of perhaps insane attention to detail that Fincher demands of everyone. And it lends this something you just can't otherwise get. It also reminds me a little bit about what De Palma said. I think I played a little of this in my episode about his film Blowout, which was the roots of Blowout for De Palma were his own obsession with the JFK assassination and how he realized he'd gotten in too deep when you know, everything seems to double back on you. It becomes impossible to not see connections everywhere or nowhere. You lose your sight, you lose your objectivity. But Fincher, as I quoted before, says that filmmaking is ultimately subjective. So, to some degree, those two things are at odds. And I think the tension of those two things is what lends this film a special power. <laughs>
1: Star, my open my eyes to take a to find that I was behind the sea, gazing with tranquility. Just then, when the hurdy-gurdy man came singing songs of love, then, when the hurdy-gurdy man came singing
4: songs
0: What a brilliant use of Donovan's hurdy-gurdy man, which is ostensibly this peace, love, and sunshine ode to uh, you know, a traveling troubadour spreading joy and love. But of course, in the Fincher universe, it's you'll never hear it again the same way. It is so malevolent. It's so altamont. It's so serial killer. It's mysterious and dark, and it just conveys so much of the tone that he was after. Now, to talk a little bit about the newspaper section gets us into one of my favorite, favorite aspects of the film, which is Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. From 1996 to 2001, it's safe to say those were Downey's worst drug years. You'll remember if you were a film fan or a Downey fan of the time, This was a time of repeated tabloid appearances, arrests, jail stints, guns, a really, really dark time that it's extraordinary that he was able to emerge from. And his comeback film, one of the comeback films, was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a uh, Shane Black film that I really want to do on the pod. I think I'm going to do that with Bruce Edwards because I think he's a big fan of that film as am I. Val Kilmer, Robert Downey Jr., a ton of great attitude and comedic insouciance on screen. That was sort of the rearrival of Downey. And so in this film, we have a together Downey who has been through hell and back and is wearing it wisely and well for his age. And the Avery character is is a critically important one because he is, the film is laid out essentially like a triptych. So you have the first, you have basically three people embodying the obsession with the Zodiac case. And the first person is Avery and he is eventually driven mad, driven insane by the case. And his obsession is, uh, the mantle of his obsession is picked up by Dave Tosky. And then there's a section where Dave, Dave Tosky becomes obsessed with the case and it takes a toll on him and his career, his family. And then at the same time, there's a remarkable scene that we'll play where Avery's obsession is taken up also by Graysmith, the cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And the same thing happens to him. His obsession takes over his life, costs him his marriage, his family. And the first person who embodies this obsession for us is Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr. And when they were talking about casting Avery, Fincher knew that the actor had to be a very verbal actor, but it also had to be somebody whose mind you could see working as he was delivering the lines. And there's so many scenes. If you watch this film again, where Downey does this, there are scenes where he is looking at Graysmith as if for the first time, even though Graysmith has worked with him for nine months and he's just been in his own world, Avery. And also his, his, his budding alcohol and drug problem, which I want to talk about as well, because I think that's a really important part of Downey's performance here. But there's, a, there's subtle moments where Downey winces a little bit when he's looking at something curiously. His intelligence, and of course, his personal history, I think, has to be informing this too. The brilliant choices I think Downey makes, because I've never heard anyone else really talk about it, it's not something that was particularly in the script other than tracing... Avery's decline, but I think that Downey gives you a brilliant depiction of a person's addictions gradually getting worse and worse and isolating them, but also being present even when his whole life and career is totally seemingly together. And there's so many little subtle things that he does that to me are building that case for what's going to eventually happen to this guy. And he does this through deploying and then controlling and ultimately withholding the sparkling intelligence that is so clearly behind the eyes and the face of Robert Downey Jr. There are moments when he leaves a room where he's just been castigated and his hand lingers on a doorknob. He's constitutionally incapable of adhering to any authority, however correct it is there are just incredible moments of characterization from Downey that uh, as many times as I've watched the film, I never get tired of watching what Downey does. I want to play a little bit of this incredible uh, introductory clip where he and Graysmith are meeting at a bar and it's one of the first times that they are uh, kind of communicating and uh, bonding. And well, actually, no. This the the, the scene starts when they're uh, where where <laughs> Gray Smith has has made some offhand comments in an editorial meeting about what is likely to be contained within the first cipher. And it's only when uh, an amateur couple solves the cipher that. Downey's Avery starts to pay attention to Gray Smith, who before then has just been sort of an irritant and no one really wants to deal with the cartoonist. So
2: um,
0: in this scene, I have to turn off Donovan first. Sorry, Donovan. In this scene, um, this is their first kind of uh, interaction, which is absolutely brilliant. Guy
1: used to sit there was a great cartoonist, Bob Bastion. Now he's on public television. Paul Avery.
4: Uh, Robert Graysmith. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been here nine months.
1: You were right, by the way. You didn't give his name. Who cracked it? A history teacher and his wife, Selena.
4: I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing
0: wild things. Just the way he says the thing, the guy that used to sit there, Bob Bashton was a great cartoonist. Now he works for public television. God knows why. I mean, just that is such a little downy moment that conveys something about the character. Um, and in this moment, he's well-dressed, he has an ascot, he has glasses, he's professional looking, he's alive. And he becomes curious, not only about the case, but he becomes curious about Graysmith. Heard even sent Vallejo a code key, just to What is that at the
3: bottom?
1: Leftovers, maybe an anagram? to do that
3: I, I like i like puzzles i do them a lot
1: how did you know he wasn't going to give his name
3: dangerous animal dangerous animal
0: what's amazing is that this is such a tour de force of active actor listening and listen to this
1: paul yes temp editorial now very well
0: Okay. That little moment. Paul. Yes, Tim. Editorial. I, I, it's just so specific. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it's so specific. It's a performance. He's performing. To me, this is the stuff of the way addicts and alcoholics act prior to their disease taking over their life. Uh, there's an obsequiousness, which he doesn't really mean in his interaction at the end with the editor. And, and I think this is all part of the characterization that Downey is so brilliantly putting forth uh, in, this, in this, this incredible performance, which is insane that it wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. We'll talk about that later. There's another brilliant scene Uh, between these two guys uh, at the bar which is a progression of uh, both the Avery character's interest in Graysmith and his alcoholism thank you
1: so tell me about yourself you married? Uh,
3: divorced two kids
1: what do you do for fun?
3: I
4: love to read. Mm. Um, I enjoy books. Those are the same things. Why have
1: you been going through my trash?
0: Come back to that. This kind of disinterested listening is so well done here by Downey. He's a little more at loose ends here. He's a little raggedy looking. His hair is longer. He's a little less put together and. There's a moment subsequent to this where,
3: who like puzzles? So they're, they're both drunk.
0: Is the no expert.
3: Right? It's just a simple substitution code, like the one that we used to do as Boy Scouts.
4: A is one, B is two. We were no Boy Scouts, Robert. Well, it's not that hard. Just He's just got to learn where In the first cipher, you actually carry that around with you. Why?
0: No reason. What's the, the subtleties the of this? Are just
3: consonant. The Mind-boggling, the delivery, the that we know portraying drunk. Kill. Right, kill. So the hardens start looking for double symbols, which they find here, here, and here, each with the same two symbols preceding it's it. It's also a scene so where Jig Gyllenhaal's
0: character, the character the head 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 is really the one who has all the information.
3: And
1: since I think the whole word is kill, and, and you got the K, you got your I, and your. And Downey isn't. But how do you go from A as one and B as two to figuring out this whole Cut. He's not
0: upstaging him. He's not grandstanding. But it is a perfect point-counterpoint scene. The
1: author presents a very simple substitution
0: code. And Gyllenhaal is so
3: good. Eight of the 26 symbols that he suggests just... found in this cipher. just... But
1: there are non-letter symbols, because there's all these medieval ones.
3: I thought they looked medieval, too. But then I found a code written in the Middle Ages.
0: He <laughs> just... Sure. The way he
3: looks at the books.
0: You gotta watch this movie for Downey. It's so extraordinary. And when the Avery character begins to lose the thread further. You wrote the Justice Department
4: asking to be put in charge of the Zodiac Six investigation. This years
1: later. I merely suggested... On our letter. ...that those with intimate knowledge of the case create an information clearing house to promote an exchange of free flow of ideas. And that you run it. Well, who is better than me? The mocked
0: man. He's so Paul, if you want strung out, out three here. Three
1: things: one, stop boozing; two, and stop
0: defiant; doing whatever else it is you're doing; and three, cut this nonsense. And this out. end part the is. of Templetons, if at any time
1: you feel my excellent work is no longer in step with this trashy provincial rag, I'll more than happily, more than happily, decamp for
0: a pastures. All I mean it. And that's just alcoholism 101, right? He's in the wrong, but he's the aggrieved party. He's the one who's going to make the dramatic exit as if he still contains all the power in the situation. He's, he's the one who's unaware it's too late for him. And this through line that runs through the first two-thirds of the film with Avery is so extraordinarily portrayed uh, on, on screen by Downey That it's to me, I think it's his greatest acting performance. Um, and it concludes his time in the film, really concludes. There's one additional scene, but
1: how are you? Fantastic. I mean, admittedly, the being exactly the frown, but you want a drink? I don't have anything blue, but I got don't worry about that. Don't don't worry about it.
4: This visit where
0: Graysmith visits an isolated. Mine. Avery on his houseboat. Mostly mine. And this line right here, swigging from a giant bottle of vodka. So, um, what's new? How he says,
4: I've been thinking. Yeah. What's new? Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write
0: a f- book, that's for sure. And about what? This, this is deep. Remember I said there was engaged listening going on from Downey? That's this is detached that. listening.
3: Put all the information
0: together, and so maybe you could it's heartbreaking, and then I was that but it's fascinatingly interesting, and it's devoid know, of all the, the comedy and you, you have all the that fun. Downey has presented.
4: You lost them, or right, right, I tossed them, I, don't know, I moved onto a boat.
0: It, it's devoid of the you know, comedy you know, that he infuses you know, a lot of these other, you know, other you know, scenes you know, with. And this is the handoff you know, between Avery you and you know, Graysmith. The, now, the obsession is now. Taken up by Gray Smith, who Avery was his idol. He looked up to him, and now he's seeing him for what he really is. And in a way, Gray Smith, who has been kind of had his head in the clouds, also sees life for the way it is. And I think then begins to get more obsessed because.
4: You're wrong. It was
0: important.
1: Then what did you ever do about it? If it was important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk. You stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right. I forgot. You went to the
4: library. I'm sorry I bothered you.
0: And this is just another true, truthful moment from Downey. This is an alcoholic severing a relationship that actually means something to him, which is what alcoholics do. And again, this obsession aspect uh, is that Avery is driven over the edge by his appetite for drugs and alcohol, but also his paranoia, his proximity to the story. And in his case, the obsession meets his addiction, and he recedes into isolation on the houseboat. It's a stunning arc, and the movie is... Shockingly not worse off for the absence of someone like Downey when he departs the film. And I mean that as a compliment to Downey because I think we can all think of many films where sometimes there's a performance that's so charismatic and so powerful but the character for whatever reason leaves the film halfway through and you kind of miss them, you know. Those are films that don't kind of adjust on the fly and figure out that they're catching magic in the bottle here, and we got to figure out how to keep this this person on screen more than we do. Um, but the Downey arc is indelible and incredible. But it's matched, I think, in the arcs that are to come, particularly with Mark Ruffalo's character as Inspector Dave Toski and his partner, who is the counterpoint to Dave Tosky. So Anthony Edwards, as Tosky's partner, Bill Armstrong, is part of this duo. It's, it's also a film about duos, and it's a film about duos broken apart. And you have all this kind of doubling or tripling of duos. So the first duo that we have is Avery Graysmith, who kind of worked together in the first third of the film to advance the story and collectively propel each other further down the road of the story. And then it's taken over by the next duo because that duo is rendered, it's ripped asunder through the case. And as that duo separates, our next duo steps into the middle part of the film, and that's Dave Tosky and Bill Armstrong, Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards. And this, too, is a story arc of a duo who work really, really well together, who are differing, complementary personalities, but who are ultimately driven apart through the case. And when you see them in action together, processing the crime scene of the shooting of the cabbie, you get a feel for their dynamic and how well... They play together.
1: Evening, gents. Lovely night for a bot's robbery. Yeah,
3: third this week. Must be end of some rush.
1: I got foot patrols going through the park. Dogs are on the way. The victim's name is Paul Stein. We set pronounce him at ten ten. Suspect fired one shot to the back of the head. Driver's Wally. carcass car keys are missing.
4: How'd you know his name?
1: Leroy there came down from Yellow Cab to ID him. Neighborhood's pretty high-end for this kind
0: of thing. This scene also, by the way, is a remarkable technical tour de force. When you watch it, it is not filmed on location, the actual location. It's all digitally recreated, uh, including some of the fire trucks, the motorcycles, obviously the sound design, all the things that are going on. And you watch the featurette, there are massive uh, blue screens that are being moved to uh, eventually be replaced with digital projection, matte painting, kind of high-tech computer graphic remakes of the neighborhood so it's remarkable
3: it's your birthday yep that's great happy birthday thanks body or scene it's your birthday I'll take the body
0: okay hey, it looks like you wiped the cab down so this looseness they have with each other this familiarity
4: could very well be we're we'll dusted at the hall the odd thing is we also got gloves suspects There's blood on
0: hey Pete I listen yeah, he to the sound back, design it's incredible in
4: who rolled them Stewards.
1: Up, oh, I got a single nine-millimeter casing.
3: Yeah, looter. Nothing from the crowd. Okay, I'm your shooter. Negro male adult who also happens to be a stocky, crew-cut Caucasian. I flag a cab, I give him this address. Can I give him this address? He's got the uh, book?
4: Right here. Washington
3: this is Naples.
0: some of David Shire's amazing score yes. in this this scene too, and it just establishes this partnership. And we are at a verifiable Zodiac crime scene, as we will soon learn. And this is just one of the set that all of the murderers that are de- de- depicted are. Stunning, tour de force, dramatic filmmaking moments.
2: You don't want any witnesses, so you tell him to go down a block. He pulls over, away from the put it in park because I'm smart
1: and I don't want him hitting the accelerator when I shoot him.
2: Yeah, he stops, puts it in park, boom.
1: I shoot him on the right side. He slumps right.
2: Maybe you've got your hand on his collar when you shoot. All right. So either way, I just don't record the blood in the front seat. So why do you get in the front seat?
0: And again, back to what I was saying before. This is about this is an example of it's a film about stories and here are two police detectives who are working out what they think the story of this crime scene is using their investigative expertise to process the scene and start to construct a story. And part of the amazing part of the film is that that's all you really have to go on at this era of police work. There's not advanced forensics at the time. And in the first Uh, lover's lane killing that we see in one of the documentaries I watched about the actual cops who worked the actual case. They talked about, you know, they got to the crime scene, I think around midnight, 1230 in the morning, and they left at 4 a.m. He said today, that would be a 24, 36 hour processing of a crime scene. And there would probably be 20, 30, 40 different technicians there taking soil samples and all kinds of things that they just did not do in the mid 60s at crime scenes. So this duo between Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards is such an incredible part of the film and Anthony Edwards uh, is so essential. I really, my appreciation for him and his importance to the film grew the more I watched it this time because Toski is the flashy role it's the one that gets the attention. But you realize that the Bill Armstrong role, played by Anthony Edwards, is in some ways one of the most important roles in the film. <clears throat> He's much more grounded. And his decency is, I think, the mirror into which the horrific nature of these events really gets portrayed. Because there's a lot of Avery and Grace character who kind of like the fact that these terrible things are happening. Avery, because at the time it's good for his career. Graysmith, because he's weird that way. Uh, Tosky, because in part he appreciates the notoriety. But Bill Armstrong is just a cop, a dedicated cop. And for him, he wears the weight of these things in a way that no one else in the film does. And he steps out ultimately because of that weight. He He has a family, he has children. And in a brilliant scene in his uh, squad car with Toski, he says, I can't be on call anymore. I, I gotta see these kids grow up. Now, Toski can't make that sacrifice in his own life. When they were casting the film, uh, Fincher said of Anthony Edwards, he's a wonderful actor. He's the most decent person I could think of. He's the balance of the movie, an actor of astonishingly underplayed performances, minimalist and empathetic. And for his part, Anthony Edwards saw Bill Armstrong, the character he was playing as a man of integrity who could never let the department down. And when you watch the film again, keep an eye out for all of the brilliant stuff that that Anthony Edwards is doing, um, because it's worthwhile. I wanna play a little, here's a little of the the real.
1: Uh, Since
0: the release of the latest letter yesterday, Our office has
1: received additional phone calls from persons in the Bay Area who feel that they can be helpful in the uh, uh, apprehension of the Zodiac suspect. Uh, My partner, Inspector Armstrong and I, who are handling the case, have received uh, several phone calls this morning and this afternoon on uh, various uh, informants who have given us some information as to names, addresses, and uh, locations uh,
0: that we have checked out and are checking out at the present time it's generally stirred up uh, quite a bit of interest. So, I mean, when I watched the film the first time in prep for this, there's something about Ruffalo's intonation of his voice that was kind of bugging me. It was a little too wispy. It was a little too, I wanted it to be more forceful. I was like, this is our lead detective. Like, where's Dirty Harry? Where's Bullet? Where's that cop who will not be stopped? And something about Ruffalo's soft-spoken nature seemed at odds. Then I watched a few of these Uh, filmic bits with the real Dave Tosky and I was disabused of that notion and I realized that Ruffalo's voice is actually completely perfect for Dave Tosky and uh, that was part of the growing appreciation for the attention to detail here and how accurately the film was cast and I think that Fincher says in one of the things that what he was casting was not so much um It's not so much kind of the, uh, it's the the quality of the person on screen, more so than the performance in places, although I don't want to say that the performances are not uniformly mind-bogglingly excellent, because they are. But if you think about this movie and the way it's cast, everyone on screen conveys a certain something to you, either in the case of Downey through your awareness, perhaps, of some of his own personal backstory, or with Jake Gyllenhaal, who has these these incredible eyes and a haunted nature that works and just reads as such to the decency that Anthony Edwards just, just portrays of the cameras pointing at him to the brilliant turn that Chloe Savigny does as Grace eventual wife, which everyone kind of agrees is a pretty thankless role but she makes it so fascinating and so interesting and finds enough room to do things that are, that are super watchable from their first date on. Uh, to John Carroll Lynch, who plays the main Zodiac suspect, Arthur Lee Allen. And this is a little bit of Fincher talking about that quality that he was looking for in the actors.
4: And um, so it's an interesting thing I was talking with, john lynch and he came in and he did a reading and he's spectacular i mean he's a spectacular actor he's uh so watchable and so um capable you know so nuanced and he can you know i mean it's like he's like a, a, a you know like all the guys in this scene Alice katea's as well they're all incredibly facile in, in being able to communicate very subtle things and so you can say to them we'll try this and you know, so it's like playing an instrument through. You know, you get to like go and whisper in somebody's ear, kind of do this, and then whisper in another guy's ear, try this, and then watch how these things play out because they will, they will take those directions and 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 allow them to kind of permeate the the what it is that's happening. And but it was in, it was really interesting when when John I, I we were talking about it. And I said I, w- I want you to try doing the scene. I want you to try doing it like a guy who's Innocent, you know. You don't know what this is. You're a little bit put upon because these police officers have come, and you've been questioned before, and you've been questioned before with re- with regards to Zodiac, and you feel you've answered all of the questions honestly. And you come into this room. They're interrupting your day. They're obviously casting some kind of aspersion because they're they've asked you know your superiors for your time, and you come into a room and you sit down, and you offer up to answer all of their questions as honestly as possible and halfway through the conversation you begin to realize that it looks pretty bad
0: <laughs> and and that's just such an amazing astute observation and the interrogation scene uh which involves elias um uh, anthony edwards mark ruffalo and john Carroll lynch playing Arthur Lee Allen, the primary suspect that the film focuses on. This is another tour de force scene. I've watched this scene 10 times in the last three, four weeks. I've counted the number of shots. I've I've watched the way the camera meets the movement on the other side of a wall. I've watched most of all, John Carroll Lynch's incredible performance as Arthur Lee Allen. And the switch that is flipped physically halfway through uh, the interrogation scene, which is such a a smart and interesting choice uh, to instruct him to play the scene as he does really two different ways. Um, And that's what he was talking about there. So what he does at first is play the scene uh, as if he's got nothing to hide. Criminating. Do you recall having any such conversation?
2: No. Have you ever read or heard anything about the Zodiac? When it was first in the paper, but I didn't follow it after those first reports. Why not?
0: Too morbid. I, I told all this to the other officer. So this is the part of the interrogation where he's playing it innocent, as an actor. Do
2: you remember his name? No, but It was right after the murder at the lake.
1: And what did you tell this officer? (coughs) And
2: right here. I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive, that I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want. That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur.
0: And right here, the scene has changed. And if you're a fan of acting, you got to watch this masterclass from John Carroll Lynch. Uh, The actual Arthur Lee Allen had some flamboyant physical movements in an interrogation that a lot of people talk about. And the way that John Carroll Lynch crosses his legs and starts to move his head and become aggressive and challenging once he realizes what this really is, it's fantastic. It's an extraordinary sequence for all of these actors and again all the more so i love scenes with three or four actors where everybody in this scene is capable of taking the scene over of doing something that draws attention to themselves they're that good as fincher was was commenting on but it's john Carroll lynch's scene and it's for him to uh to be the center. And he can be the center when what we know of the other characters is manifested just in the way Fincher cuts away to them. That's what's incredible when you watch it again. And I thought it was interesting what John Carroll Lynch said about what Fincher just said. As far
2: as whether or not Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac killer, um, it was uh, clear watching the film how David felt about it. I mean, uh, it was clear who he thought the killer was. Uh, but he asked me very specifically to play the character as if he wasn't guilty. And uh, I think that was a really wise choice. And I, I found that in the movie, watching it, what the movie's really about, it seems to me, is the virus as of, of obsession. And that this person, the Zodiac, his sociopathy, his, his virus of, of obsession, then is transferred to each and every person and damages or destroys their lives. And that's what's so amazing. And it's interesting that Mr. Fincher is, um, is so obsessive that in some way I think he knows how it is to be uh, so focused as to let everything else drop away and cause damage possibly. I don't know well enough to know.
0: Extraordinary. Spot on. <laughs> and borne out by what some of the other people involved in the making of the film will say. I wanted to play a couple quick... Uh, bits here because they're just astounding details for Fincher's commitment to uh, <laughs> commitment to how specific things had to be. There's a the the costumes are fantastic. Uh, the costume designer is a man named Casey Storm, and he's got some great sound bites in the making of featurettes, and uh, his costumes are extraordinary. And such a part of what makes the film work. And another thing that I think should have been nominated for an Academy Award, by the way. Anyway, there's a scene in the Lake Berryessa scene, which is the stabbing of the two lovers in this daylit outdoor beautiful location, which is another brilliant part of the film, which is like this is not seven. It's not pouring rain, and we're not in hovel-like terrifying locations inside this. This killing, this stabbing happens outdoors in the most idyllic. A freedom feeling location in which you should be safe. And then this hooded monster comes out from behind the tree and is wearing this outlandish Zodiac costume. Um, and it has a hood that you'll recall. And this is Casey storm talking about the notes that Fincher had for the hood.
3: The Zodiac hood outfit is the one that there's the most information on. Cause Brian Hartnell has not only survived, but, well grounded and able to talk about this case easily and had a lot of information to supply so it's very specific in that he's wearing this outfit that was inappropriate for such a hot day, he's wearing wool pants, he is wearing this windbreaker which is zipped up to the top with a Zodiac logo in the middle and then the hood and you can barely see it in the film but in the cutout slit of the eyes there's what he believed were clip on sunglasses so that you couldn't see anything inside except maybe a wisp of hair and the bottoms of his cheeks underneath it. It took a little while to get it there I remember actually having a meeting with Fincher where um, we kind of had it narrowed down and had picked the one that we wanted. And then he said, I still feel like the eye slit is a little bit too wide. I want to see less of the eyes. And I said, well, okay, I just, it's, it's kind of, I think it's, you know, it's pretty small now and I'm pretty sure it's, it's going to be good. And he does need to see out of it. So there's a practicality to it. And he goes, no, I understand it. It's almost exactly right. I think what we should do maybe is just lose one line of thread across the top and then it'll be perfect. And so that's what we did. Or we added a line of thread. I can't remember. But whatever it was, he wanted to change one line of thread in the amount of the size of the hole. That was classic Fincher. I
0: mean, what a soundbite. That's what they're dealing with. That's what everyone on set was dealing with, which is incredible. Uh, When you think about, you know, what everyone has to bring in order to make this all come together um i really liked what casey storm had to say this is another little bit of him about
3: costume design. It
4: work i'm done i got everything i need here
3: Darlene Farron, the first uh, murder victim in the film, the outfit that she's wearing in the film is the outfit that she was killed in. And we had that information because our research department was given access to evidence and they had her, it was like a jumpsuit, and we copied the fabric based from a digital photo, made the fabric, and then used the idea of the design and the picture. We had photos of the whole outfit and put that together and actually made the exact outfit that she's in. So kind of across the board, that was the attention to detail that we paid on every single costume in the movie
0: so you know this stuff isn't stuff that you as a viewer are going to notice per se it is stuff that the actors are going to notice on set and every actor you i have heard this innumerable times in in doing episodes of the pod and, and listening to actors talk about preparing for roles that the more real the filmmakers could make the environment for them the better it is for them uh, and their characters so that's how the preparation can uh, can get to the place that it did. But what's different and interesting is how Fincher prepared for this film compared to some of his other films.
4: Hey, I didn't prep this movie in the same way that I've prepped other movies. I, I didn't do any storyboards. I didn't want to do any storyboards. I did some previs for the murder sequences just so that people could have an idea of, of what we were going to see, the extent of what we were going to see. But for the most part, it was kind of... I think we wanna be here for this. I think we wanna and I was trying to I mean, this movie is very simply staged. And um and that was always the guiding principle. It's like we've gotta do this in the in a way that is um you know, it's it's not about being meat and potatoes, it's about being I don't want people to be distracted from anything that the characters are saying. It was a a very conscious decision to you know, we don't want any artifice, we don't we don't want to underline anything cinematically. We want to just present behavior and see where see where it leads the viewer.
0: And that's exactly what happens. And the behavior and where it leads the viewer is part of what is so incredible uh, for for us watching this film again. So the duos, the splitting of the duos. Um, The police procedural aspect of it in the middle part of the film is great. Um, And there's also this cool stuff, which I always love, which is the realism versus the screen version of things. We've done this a number of times on the pod in the past. Most recently, I think in my episode about the queen, I played actual excerpts of the queen's speech and Tony Blair's speeches relating to the death of Diana played the actual ones and then played the film versions of them and commented on how minutely, specifically accurate the performances were. There's something that happens with a minutely, specifically accurate performance of something that you can then look up. And maybe I'm the only sort of film nerd that would go look up the actual and see how closely they married it. But one of the famous moments that occurred in the Zodiac case was Melvin Belli, who was a TV-hogging lawyer, notable lawyer of the time in the San Francisco area. In the Zodiac killer's quest for fame and notoriety, he wrote to Melvin Belli, he, he mentioned Melvin Belli, and he requested that Melvin Belli be on a call-in program and that he be allowed to speak to Melvin Belli. And so that's dramatized really well. Who am I speaking with? This is the Zodiac
1: speaking. Is there something I can call you that's a little less ominous?
0: Sam. Sam. So that's a film version of something that actually happened. And this is...
2: Attorney Melvin Belli
0: a portion of the real version today to keep a with San of what happened.
1: Talk to us. Just tell us what's going on in, in, inside you right now, Sam. Please. I have headache. Right. How long have you had those headaches, Sam? In a long time? Since I killed a kid. What? Well, was it before December that you had the headaches? Yes. Were you in service that you might have had uh, an injury in service? Did you ever fall out of a tree or downstairs? Were you ever unconscious? I don't know. You don't remember? Does aspirin do you any good? No. Doesn't do any good. Some young stuff never did really good
4: either.
0: So here you have, you know, what purports to be a real conversation with an active serial killer calling into a television show to talk to a tv notable criminal defense lawyer and part of the film is brilliantly about what would then happen in american society that i think we're so living through right now like this instagram fame influencer fame doing it for the gram doing it for the clicks doing it for the likes Uh, the zodiac was really way way ahead of his time in in pursuing fame of that way But you can also see how the dramatized version has the heavy breathing. The voice is scarier. The voice is more mundane in the real call-in. As it is when you go down the rabbit hole and you look at suspects and interviews of suspects, they're much more mundane than we are given on screen in film and television. This omniscient, mastermind, diabolical, frightening, physically imposing quick lightning striking killer that we've come to see when you listen to these people whether it's Dahmer whether it's Arthur Lee Allen or any of the people either accused of or who are known to have done things uh, David Berkowitz the son of Sam Mark David Chapman who shot Reagan they're 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 meek they're 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 mild-mannered they're not assertive dynamic personalities ted bundy is maybe an outlier in that regard now of course in this call that's dramatized and as they show in the film it was traced to a mental hospital it was not the zodiac Uh, but it's a great performance by brian cox to portray melvin Belli, and it's a great set piece in a film again to the extent that it's a film about filmmaking, it's this moment of television and how different it was and the fakery required in the era to have this, this moment where Melvin Belli and the host are seeming to stare at the person calling in, but of course they're just looking into a a blank television studio. And uh, it's this fabricated conversation that technology is starting to allow to occur. And I think that's part of what's interestingly contained in the film. Now, the obsession of the film, I think it's pretty clear from watching the onset mini featurettes from the DVD that, you know, Fincher was obsessed. He famously, at this time, I don't know if it's still true, he's doing 50 takes, 60 takes, 30 takes of sometimes seemingly mundane things. There's a scene in the beginning of the film where Graysmith is dropping his kid off at school and he's doodling in a notebook at a red light. And then someone honks behind him when the light turns green and he tosses the notebook down. And that's how we establish that this person that we haven't seen arrive at the Chronicle yet is a cartoonist because he tosses his notebook onto the car seat and it flops open to some drawings. Well, there's a scene in the featurette. I think in the featurette, you can see them do it 10, 12, 13 times. Uh, and and Hall is kind of there's a conversation where someone's saying like, let's, let's make a bet. How many times is he going to make me do this? I think, I think it's pretty well established that Hall at the time, uh, didn't have a great experience. He gave a famous quote to the New York times saying that Fincher paints with actors. And sometimes it's hard to be a color, which is a great quote. Uh, but he then later said, uh, that he wished at the time he was mature enough to understand that what Fincher simply wanted was the best of him as an actor. And also, some awareness that I think Fincher had, that at the time, Hall is probably 24 years old. Uh, he was coming off, you know, jarhead. He's coming off like this moment that he had where he was a thing. He was a commodity in Hollywood. He had agents. He had managers. He had press obligations. He had a lot of things. And Fincher says, you know, I am... Uh, I'm not here to shoot around your hangover. I'm not here to shoot around your conversation with your agent. I require full commitment, full presence. This is what we're here to do. And this is it. You've heard this said before. I think, uh, was it De Palma who had told his young cast and Carrie, like, in case you're wondering, this is the experience, you know, don't save part of yourself for something that you think being, being in a movie is about. This is all it's about, this time that we're together on the set. Uh, so that obsessive attention to detail, the obsessiveness that, that perhaps the Zodiac Killer contained was, was embodied by Fincher, who, of course, that makes him the right person to do this. Um, 56 takes of a scene between Toski and Graysmith at Graysmith's house towards the end of the movie. 56, 56 takes. There's a scene between Graysmith and Toski at a diner where Ruffalo has to take a bite or two of a cheeseburger that he's eating. And, you know, he had to do that 10, 12 times. He had to take 10, 12 bites of a cheeseburger each time in order to be present in this scene. And there's a lot of humor in the film, too, for all of this meticulousness, for all of this attention to detail. I think Fincher is one of those guys kind of like Kubrick. There's, to me, such a mordant sense of humor in all of this, all of his movies, And certainly in the way that these killings are staged, there's a mordant sense of humor. Even as there's no car chases, there's no manufactured, salacious violence like in Seven. um, It is all in service of the movie, but it is underplayed, if anything. And in doing so, uh, it, it brings it to life. So as I mentioned in the casting, he talked about the fact that he's looking for actors that... It's an impression that the actors leave, not the way that they look in terms of his mantra for casting. So some alternative casting, which was pretty fascinating, for the uh, for the Zodiac or the suspect of the Zodiac presented, played by John Carroll Lynch so brilliantly. Originally, Frank Black, lead singer of the Pixies, was strongly considered because of his very close resemblance to Arthur Lee Allen of the time. Um, Benicio del Toro had been pre-approved by the studio to play Avery opposite Jake Gyllenhaal. And in one of Gray Smith's books, he talks about one of the producers being on the phone with Benicio del Toro's agent, who I think, again, at the time this was made, was having that career moment. And the agent starts off telling how much the actor is making, telling the producer how much the actor makes, what his quote is. And and the producer very quickly says, you know what, this isn't going to work. This is not a situation where any actor's agent is going to start negotiating with the studio to try to get more money. I know exactly what we have in the budget for Dave Tosky, And the place where you're starting out right now tells me, this is not going to work, so let's move on. (laughs) And he just kept moving. I mean, I have a lot of respect for uh, Brad Fisher in reading Grace Smith's book about the pre-production process of the film. He worked tirelessly to get this thing made and the innumerable millions of details that were make or break is almost mind-numbing. I mean, to do this for a living, um, he doesn't seem to have much of an outside life in Grace Smith's book. And you can understand why. Uh, He, again, he's an obsessive character, and it requires that obsessive attention to detail to hold the line on all the millions of decisions that have to be made. Another actor who was liked by Fincher for the role of Paul Avery was Aaron Eckhart, And Daniel Craig, who I think was just starting his run as James Bond at the time. Uh, Other actors for Dave Tosky, Sean Penn was considered. But Fincher apparently got turned off after seeing a film called The Assassination of Richard Nixon. I'm not sure why. Kevin Spacey was considered for Paul Avery. Of course, would have been tied into seven in a way had that happened christian bale was very very interested in playing graysmith but the filmmakers thought of him more as paul avery bale was a big big fan of the script he got it he was on board early um he told jamie vanderbilt the screenwriter it was one of the best scripts he had ever written and he brought his copy of the script to a lunch they were having to discuss him potentially being in the movie and he said this is how I thought of it. And he took the script out, he put it on the table and on the front cover he had just written phenomenal. So he really wanted it. Now the irony is that Jake Gyllenhaal lost out to Christian Bale for the role of Batman in what would be the superstar career-making turn for Christian Bale as Batman. And in the end, Christian Bale lost out to Jake Gyllenhaal for Zodiac. So... There you go. That's Hollywood in a nutshell. Um, If Frank Black had been cast as Leon, I think that would have maybe been a little bit too akin to Fincher casting Meatloaf in Fight Club, so maybe they didn't do it for that reason. There's not a lot of information about why that didn't happen, but I think John Carroll Lynch is... Obviously, Frank Black is not an actor, per se. John Carroll Lynch brought something to it that was just so uh, incredibly beyond... Dermot Mulroney is great as the leader of the cop shop. Um, he's got a little pot belly that's tacked onto him. His laconic performance is is really good. And it's just another example of how thoroughly, brilliantly cast this film is, top to bottom with just standout uh, performances. And the it goes all the way down to people like James LaGrosse, who just has like two scenes in the movie. Now I'm a big James LaGrosse fan from the nineties and he's actually on Twitter and uh, he's a pretty good follow. And I was laughing when I watched the film because he has two scenes. One scene he's with uh, Elias Cotillas after Gray Smith leaves the Vallejo cop shop in a particular moment of obsession. And he's like, who was that? And Ilias Cotillas character, Jack Molnack says some, cont- some cartoonist who thinks he's going to solve the Zodiac. And, uh, James LeGrosse waits a perfect beat and says, oh yeah, good for him. And and then he has, well, I think, a really critical scene at the end. And uh, so anyway, I took a picture of that first scene where he's in like this <coughs> patrolman uniform. And I tweeted it to James LeGrosse and I said, James LeGrosse, there are no small roles. So I'm alluding to the, the phrase, there are no small roles, only small actors, meaning don't think about the size of your role. Think about what you can do with it. And I, to me, I thought it was, a, I was being genuine. I thought it was a real appreciation. And he said, oh, yes, there are. And you're looking at one of them with a smiley face. Um, and I wrote back and I said, no, I don't think so. I think those—I think that scene and the next scene that he has is critically important. And so I said, well, I, I disagree. I think there's a scene at the end uh, where the great and unique actor Jimmy Simpson, plays Mike Majot, who's been missing for the entire movie since he was one of the earliest victims. And as I alluded to, the real Majoe had lived a unfortunate life of homelessness and and other difficulties. And one of the final scenes of the film is James LeGros playing uh Bawart, who's one of the one of the uh, Vallejo police uh, investigators sits down across from Mike Majot all these years later, and he presents him with a lineup card. And one of the faces is who we've now come to know as Arthur Lee Allen. And Mike Majot says, that's the man. That's the man who shot me. I haven't seen that face since 1966 or whatever it was. And I think that James LeGrosse's essential decency and thoroughness is required in that scene um and he mentioned there was supposed to be a third scene but it got cut and he couldn't remember what it was and in reading grace Smith's book i think it was a scene between him and the jake gyllenhaal character at the end of the movie where uh it would kind of tie things up where i think the gyllenhaal character was saying like look we we've got this guy we can you can file on him you can get charges and i think they used the james LeGros character to say look this guy's dying of diabetes." Like. Whether we get him or not, he's already been got. And I guess that was scripted. It may have been shot. It's not an extra that I can see. Um, but to me, that's, that's an indication, too, of how specific all of the incredible acting performances are. And in a nice little bit of continuity, you have this incredible scene, um, which is, I would say, the creepiest, most ominous killing scene is Ione Sky playing this mother in another incredible scene where uh, someone stops to tell her that her right rear wheel is loose and I'll tighten the lug nuts for you. She's by herself. It's another incredible scene where the information for us is parceled out so sparsely. So this whole beginning part of the scene where she has a problem. It's only now that we see a cutaway that we realize she has a baby in the car. And it's only when she gets out of the car that we realize that she's also pregnant. So the way those stakes are added to this already menacing late night highway scene, the guy who helped her now reappears. Are
1: you okay? Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. Must have been worse than I thought. I
2: can give you a lift to a
3: service station. Okay.
0: And just the uncertainty in her voice and the, the the thrum of his engine as he guns it forward a little bit, all this menace that's added, the fact that this is now the fourth Zodiac portrayal we've seen.
4: The more the merrier.
0: We don't really see him, so you don't ever really get a sense of who's who. And one of the amazing devices that Fincher uses is there's four different actors portraying the Zodiac in each of the four different crimes that we see.
3: I think we just passed a filling station.
0: It was closed.
3: Toys go around helping people in the night.
4: Not done with them, they don't need much
2: help. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window.
0: That is the most baroque, over the top moment in the film, actually. And it's just, it's followed by this incredible piano crescendo. As I was saying, Fincher uses four different actors to portray the body of the Zodiac killer. And four different, so you have four different voices when you hear him. You don't hear him in the first one. But so I think you have three different vocalizations. Now, you actually don't hear him in two. You only hear him speak in the Lake Berryessa uh, stabbing and in this one. Now, this crime as portrayed turned out purportedly not to be a zodiac. It was kind of one of those stories where this thing definitely happened to this woman and her baby, where some creepy guy was trying to help her and kept her in the car for several hours driving around. And she says he looked like the Zodiac. He didn't say that he was the Zodiac. But details of this were printed in the paper. And the Zodiac claimed credit for it in a letter. But as we see in the movie, he only took credit for parts of the story that had already been written about in the newspaper. So it's not widely believed to actually be one of the Zodiac moments. But the way that Fincher uses four different people to portray the killer at different moments contributes this this sense that we don't know what happened because we don't know. And he's including this scene because it shows the spread of the fear. And I think it shows how impossible it became to really... Uh, sort out the wheat from the chaff when there was very little cooperation between the police departments. And it's included. And it's amazing that it's included because it's, uh, it's not a Zodiac killing. No one is killed. She survives. The baby survives. So to talk about a little bit of how could this movie possibly not receive any Oscar nominations in the 2008 Academy Awards is, is insane. It's insane. The nominations that I would imagine, you would have to consider, I guess it's a bit difficult in an ensemble picture like this to pick out best actor, but it would have to be Jake Gyllenhaal because his character runs through all three sections of the film. So I would say Jake Gyllenhaal absolutely deserved to be nominated Best actor, and I think Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo should have been nominated for best supporting actor at a minimum. I could also make a convincing argument for Anthony Edwards, John Carroll Lynch. I would love to make an argument for, but it's really one scene. These are the actors in a leading role that year Daniel Day Lewis for There Will Be Blood, George Clooney in. The forgettable Michael Clayton, Johnny Depp in the forgettable Sweeney Todd, Tommy Lee Jones in the forgettable In the Valley of Elah, and Viggo Mortensen in the unforgettable Eastern Promises. Now, okay, to the extent that I remember those performances, I certainly remember Daniel Day Lewis in There Will Be Blood, and he was the winner. I remember Clooney in Clayton, but not to speak of, and Viggo Mortensen in Eastern Promises I remember as well. Daniel Day Lewis, incredible actor, Incredible performance, enduring film. But Jake Gyllenhaal should have been in that list. Supporting actor nominations, Javier Bardem for No Country for Old Men, Casey Affleck for The Assassination of Jesse James by The Coward Robert Ford, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Charlie Wilson's War, Hal Holbrook for Into the Wild, and Tom Wilkinson for Michael Clayton. This is a really good list, really good year for performances, but you have to have Robert Downey Jr. on this list. Uh, You have to have Mark Ruffalo on this list. You probably have to have Anthony Edwards on this list. And so why wasn't that the case? It's insane. Art direction, cinematography was interesting too. So this film was quote unquote shot by Harris Savides, a now deceased legendary cinematographer. As I said, it was one of the first films fully shot on digital. Now at the time, I don't know if you guys remember this, but this, this caused me to remember this that there was a moment where movies shot on digital were sort of snubbed in the Oscars because I guess it wasn't considered real filmmaking. And if you look at the nominees for cinematography the year this film would have been awarded, they're all shot on film. There Will Be Blood, Jesse James, Atonement, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, No Country for Old Men. All shot on film. And I wonder if the snub for this film's cinematography, which is otherwise stunning and exceptional, was because of that. Costume design, as I mentioned, this should have absolutely been nominated for uh, costume design. Should have been nominated for directing, which it wasn't. And it should have been nominated for best film. It's just insane. Here are the best picture nominees. No Country for Old Men, Atonement, Juno, Michael Clayton, and There Will Be Blood. Okay, but I mean, this film absolutely belonged within that group because it's so different from all of them. And it's shocking to me, and I don't know what it's about. Uh, is it because it was considered a genre picture? Is it was be is it because maybe Fincher in his uh, I don't really need you attitude towards Hollywood? You know, maybe wasn't the type of person whose films the Academy at the time wanted to shower with praise and attention. I don't really know. Was it because Downey was not yet a fully trustable, bankable, uh, return to form big box office actor? Let's remember, this is the last, one of the last films that Downey made before he became Iron Man and it's one of the last real acting performances that Downey gave to this day. Maybe post Marvel era he will return to form and do some of the work that he's so capable of doing, but this is Downey before that happened. So it's crazy to me that this this film was snubbed the way that it was. It it really was a snubbing. I I didn't read anything in any of the prep about why that might have been. I wish I wish that someone would answer that. I would love the chance to talk to uh to Brad Fisher, the producer, or uh, Jamie Vanderbilt, and and get their get their their unvarnished impression if they if they felt they could share one about why that was. It's 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 so egregious to me that there's got to be some reason behind it that I'm not thinking of. Okay, the last thing I wanted to wrap on is talking about the case, the Zodiac case, which you know it's hard not to become obsessed with when you watch the film and you start thinking about how crazy it is in this time that we're living in, when everything feels knowable now, within moments, that this has endured as an unsolved, supposedly linked series of crimes. In fact, shockingly, one of the cards that the Zodiac mailed on November 8th, 1969, had a 340-character cryptogram of the sort he had sent. This Cryptogram, this cipher that he sent in November of 1969, was only solved in December of 2020 by an international team of private citizens, including software engineer Dave Oranchak, Australian mathematician Sam Blake, and Belgian programmer Jarl van Eck. In the, in the finally decrypted message, the Zodiac denied being the Sam who spoke on AM San Francisco to Marvin Belli, I spray that he was not afraid of the gas chamber because it would send him to paradise all the sooner. Teams submitted their findings to the FBI, which verified the discovery. FBI stated the decoded message gave no further clues to the identity. So here we are, all these years later, and it's still, it took that long for someone to crack this cipher. Do you understand how insane that is? I'm talking NSA. CIA, okay, tech-level encryption quant brainiacs of the sort that walk amongst us now a hell of a lot more than they did in 1969. It, it took that long to crack the cipher. Uh, Arthur Lee Allen, who clearly the film and many of the police officers and probably most pointedly Robert Graysmith himself, because it's this, this, this film is based on his book, that's clearly the suspect that I think Fincher and Graysmith think did it. I think Toski probably thinks that. Pointedly, though, Toski's partner, it's I, and from my reading, doesn't think that. He, he got off the idea of Arthur Lee Allen as the Zodiac. And I have to say I did too in what limited research I did and just reading for this. Arthur Allen is indeed a creepy, weird character of 1950s California vintage. He's this bizarre combination of kind of uh, spoiled, almost rich kid who is a diver, a hunter, a stock car enthusiast. He's kind of like American graffiti gone wrong because he's got this complicated relationship with his unloving mother his father passes away. His father was a military man. He spent some time in the military. There's a ton of circumstantial evidence. He has the same size shoe, same size glove. Um, he worked at the Navy, which is the only, you know, the, the Navy base in San Francisco, which is the only place you could have bought these specific wing walker shoes that the Zodiac left at print from um, at, at, the, at the crime sites. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but he was a pedophile. He was a convicted and self-confessed child molester of both sexes, which is apparently extremely unusual, according to a couple of the serial killer profiles that I encountered in doing this research. But he's also an alcoholic, um, self-described and through people that spent quite a bit of time with him, including this family of children that he befriended. They have a YouTube channel. It's very hard to watch these videos as they are now recounting. Um, In some ways, the most complicated portrayal of him because their father was in prison and Arthur Lee Allen befriended their vulnerable mother who had all of these children, something like at least three, maybe six kids on her hands. And he insinuated himself into the family and he was a teacher at a school and he had all of the trappings of someone that she could trust her children with. But of course, he was molesting the sister and maybe one or two of the brothers as well. And in their YouTube videos, you can hear this very human, realistic sense of the fact that, uh, yes, it's horrid what he did and it affected their lives in ways that are visibly apparent it feels, but at the same time, he did, he did play this role in their family that was important to them. Um, And that's the complexity that we're talking about here of a monster like Arthur Lee Allen, who was interviewed many times by the tabloid press through the eighties and the nineties before his death. Um, And he sounds like a big baby. You can, you can see him being interviewed by like some local news stations in his basement um, fake crying, theatrical in the way that John Carroll Lynch's performance hints at a couple times.
1: The Zodiac Killer has haunted California's consciousness for more than 20 years. A mass murderer making his mark in the 60s by killing, then sending letters taunting police. Thousands of people have been interviewed, and the Zodiac's bounced in and out of the news. And through it all, there's been one constant Arthur Allen. I'm not the Zodiac Killer. I know that. I, I know that deep in my soul. But Alan says the cops don't believe him. Allen says he's been a prime suspect off and on for 20 years, and now it's on again. Last February, the Vallejo police searching his home, he says. And now, he says, he's about had it. I've never been known for good luck, and I guess this is pretty much living proof of it. Now, Alan's no angel. He admits that. Says he's been busted for child molestation, served time, knows he was wrong. But whatever coincidences making him look like the zodiac he says are only that coincidences just point blank are you a murderer no are you the zodiac killer no definitely not no i couldn't murder anyone how do you live with this it's difficult as hell and it can be ex- <sighs> it could be terribly depressing and if I deserved any of it, that would be something different, but I don't. Michael Finney, Channel 7 News, tonight.
0: Uh, but this is a guy who would drink two quarts of beer in the morning before 10 a.m. You know, also reading some of the serial killer profiling stuff, being a, being a serious alcoholic of that level is not something typical to serial killers, who typically have so much need for control, that they would not allow themselves to get out of control in the manner of someone who required that much alcohol in their system just to get going. As a siren in the background, sort of neatly underscores and wraps up this episode. So, the more I read about Arthur Lee Allen, the less I sort of liked him as the Zodiac. I can only go on. Um, I can only go on some gut feelings, one of the gut feelings I had was maybe this was a cop, you know, maybe being able to take credit for information that would only be known to the police investigating the, the, the murder site, uh, meant that he had access to the murder site or worked in the police department or, um, had sources or worked in a newspaper business the way the messages and the uh, the phone calls that you hear to 911 are verbatim and they're so specific, right? They're specific in ways that I think of as law enforcement specific. Like if you go two miles west on this road, one and a half miles east of here or there, there's a lot of very specific uh, information given succinctly, which is kind of the way cops talk. Is it possible that these were all committed by different people and someone who had access to the information of the murders wrote in claiming credit for all of these. Possibly, although in the murder of Paul Stein, the cab driver, the Zodiac did mail in two pieces of the cab driver's bloody shirt, which only, well, again, I say only, Is it possible someone could have obtained that through police evidence? The police at the time certainly did not notice that the shirt was ripped when they processed the crime scene. So even though that seems to be such a smoking gun that says the person who sent this note did this crime because he has a portion of the shirt and the kids who reported that Uh, to the police and made the 911 call reported that the killer had spent some time in the front seat of the car. And you, you can see in the movie that the cops are sort of, they don't know why he would have been in the front seat. Well, it turns out he's in the front seat to rip off this portion of his bloody shirt as proof. Is it possible that after the body had been processed, that someone perhaps working in the police department was able to obtain a section of the shirt and use that for proof. You know, I think you'd have to consider that, and I didn't read anything anything of that considered. There are some, there is a handful of few other primary suspects, um, but each of them, when you sort of go down the line, you get the sense of a thing that cops talk a lot about, which is there's a lot of people who try to make the evidence fit the person. Uh, or make the person fit the evidence. They're trying to find connections where maybe they don't exist, uh, as opposed to simply following the evidence wherever it goes. And Arthur Lee Allen was cleared of handwriting analysis. His fingerprints, there's like a palm print left on the car. No one knows where that came from. Was it one of the kids? Was it one of the police officers? Was it the killer? So he he lived his whole life under the suspicion of this, of being the Zodiac. Did he like that a little bit? I mean, part of the way the movie's about fame and our sick attraction to it, I think he did enjoy it. Uh, I think some of his quote-unquote friends who informed on him uh, also raised some warning bells to me. There's a lot of people being friends with this guy after they knew he had lost jobs at schools for molesting young children Uh, who then go on to inform on him later. So I don't know, but it's an enduring mystery. And as such, that's pretty fascinating in our day and age. Either these were all the work of one person who has managed to elude capture all of these years and could still be alive, or uh, they are unconnected, but in a precursor of things to come, somebody was very astute about obtaining information and claiming credit for something that they didn't do. And because they didn't actually do it, There was nothing to link them to it. Um, But you would think with such notoriety, after all these years, somebody who knew something would come forward, which does lend credence to the idea that one person is responsible for this and that person was never found unless you believe that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac himself. So with that, I will say I hope you have enjoyed this episode and I will be back soon with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. So thank you so much for listening.